You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fisher. Hey listeners, we're heading into the home stretch of the regular season with about a week and a half to go before the playoffs. This episode, we're excited to talk to you about the Minnesota Timberwolves, a franchise that has struggled in recent years, just last month surpassing the Clippers for lowest overall franchise winning percentage in the NBA but has a lot of exciting young talent and potential for the future. Our guest today is Steve McPherson, who covers the team for the website A Wolf Among Wolves and 1500 ESPN Twin Cities Sports Radio, as well as the NBA at large for Rolling Stone and Vice Sports, among other outlets. In his younger days, Steve was also a member of a Latino-Jewish hip-hop group, despite not being Latino or Jewish himself and that group gave performances all over the country and even in Europe as well. Hey Steve, how's it going? Thanks for joining us tonight. It's going pretty well, I can't complain. So let's fire this thing off, talking about that big win Tuesday night. The T-Wolves gave the Warriors just their ninth loss of the season, an improbable 124-117 to overtime victory. After the game, Andrew Wiggins in the post-game interview said that he feels like they can win on any given night. Briefly, what went right for the T-Wolves that game, and do you think we can take any greater importance just from one game about how good this team might be in the future? Well, I wouldn't want to take too much importance or too—I don't think that specific game implies that much. I mean, I think that—I don't think it was as improbable as maybe it seemed if you hadn't—if you'd watched the last Wolves-Warriors game, like, they played them really tough. And it was a close game up until the very end, at which point— Sam Mitchell's tactical acumen, you know, for whatever it's worth, it just didn't come together. I don't know if that was players not executing what he was calling or if it was on his end of not really having it. I mean, I wouldn't blame him for not necessarily having called up, you know, crunch time situations against the Warriors. You know, that's <laughs> he probably didn't expect to be in that situation. And I don't know if they were more prepared for it this time, but the team, the, the Wolves have definitely gotten up against tough competition. They've sometimes played down to bad competition. That seems like a very natural thing for young teams. I think that they, the fact that they play up, it can, be, can, it can be frustrating that they don't always get up for games that way. But it's much better to see them you know, sort of get fired up for an important game than to just not get fired up, period. And I think that, that that's what you saw last night. Obviously, they got a bunch of unexpected good performances from bench guys. I believe that the whole bench was you know, plus double digits, basically, including you know, uh, Nemanja Bialica, who's had who sort of struggled of late. Tyus Jones had a really good game. Shabazz Muhammad had a career-high 35 points. And he had sort of looked like a lost cause the last couple weeks. He had been good early in the season and then had sort of seemed like he was fading, and he came on really strong. And then, of course, Wiggins had something like, twenty, I think, 27 points in the second half for like a 35-point game. And Towns was a total handful. I think maybe one of the biggest takeaways is that you see that how difficult of a matchup Towns is going to be for for years at this point. When you see him both stepping out to defend Steph Curry and shutting him down on a possession, which is amazing for a guy who's seven feet tall, and then also being a threat to score on the other end, both shooting it and then closer into the basket. 
I mean, I think that it was just a very complete game from the Wolves. And it's the kind of thing that when you see the team play well like that, you know, they have that gear. It's just about consistently achieving that gear from game to game, I think. Yeah, a guy you mentioned, Carl Anthony Towns, he's probably the biggest story throughout the season for the Wolves. He seems like he's running away with the Rookie of the Year race now, and people are giving him comparisons to some greats like Tim Duncan or Anthony Davis. How has he been so successful so early in his career, and where do you think there might be still room for improvement for Towns? Well, I was just actually talking about this on 1500 ESPN today. I went on Mackie and Judd, which is sort of like the morning weekday show there. And Judd Zolgud was asking me, you know, is there any part of Towns' game that you feel is not there yet that concerns you? Because you look at guys like Rubio. Rubio is a great player and is, is underrated, I think, in a lot of ways. But he's not a good shooter. Andrew Wiggins has a ton of potential, but, you know, his ball handling is limited. His, his defense, which looked great last year, has not looked as good this year. The thing about Towns is there's really no element of his game that seems to be like a huge, there's no huge lack of something with him. He scores in the post. He's got a good jumper. He defends well. He blocks well. His footwork is really good. He shoots over 80% from the free throw line, which is amazing because you look at other bigs like Andre Drummond, DeAndre Jordan, some of those guys who are defensive threats in some of the ways that Towns is. And they can't hit a free throw. But, you know, Towns shoots it as well as most guards in the NBA. So he has all those tools. I think that the biggest area for improvement is for him to become the complete package, to put all those things together constantly. I don't think he has as much of an issue as Wiggins does about getting up for big matchups. He seems to be more consistent game to game already. But any player in the NBA is going to hit you know, a sort of wall at some point where other teams learn how to play them. Other teams will ferret out their weaknesses. And that's the point at which they sort of have to grow horizontally rather than vertically. Towns is still growing sort of vertically into his game, but eventually he's going to get stymied in some ways and he has to figure out how else he can be effective. You know, I think the Wolves saw it with, with Kevin Love where he became an amazing shooter, but because of you know his lack of mobility, it was very hard for him to become a go-to guy at the end of games. So his playmaking had to improve. He became a better passer from the elbow. Obviously in Cleveland, he's had uh, you know difficulty in terms of fitting into that system in a lot of ways. But I think most great players hit some kind of wall at some point where they reach their potential and then they have to figure out how to go around that rather than through it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Towns just as as other teams figure him out more. I think the great thing about Towns also is that he just seems so charismatic. He seems like he has the type of personality that makes people want to love him. The internet has uncovered videos of him from his high school reporting for his school TV station interviewing NBA players. Is there anything more you can tell us about his personality off the court? Is he as lovable as it seems? He is. I mean, I think that if there's any knock on him in that regard, it's he's almost too good at it right now because he feels very well groomed for dealing with the media and doing uh, and saying the right things. And it can feel a little political sometimes, um, which there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. It's better than the opposite where you're saying (laughs) you're pissing people off or something. But I think his personality is pretty genuine in that way. He's before the season started, I did a uh, an interview with him for Minneapolis St. Paul magazine where he was getting fitted for a suit because he needed some some new, you know, really nice suits 
for the season. And obviously it's hard to fit a guy who's seven feet tall with whatever size feet they are. His feet are ludicrous. If you're ever just keying on it, the size of his feet, they're ridiculous. So it was at a very nice tailor and these tailors are custom making a suit. So I got to sort of sit and chat with him for a while. And he's just a very genuine guy, which is a huge strength for him. I was talking to, I think it, uh, it was at the all-star game. I was talking to uh, one of the trainers for the Wolves who was saying that chemistry wise, he was a really good pick for the Wolves, aside from the way he how good he is on the court as a player and how he fits with the team as a player. If you were looking at Wiggins and Levine, who they already have, Wiggins is kind of quiet. Um, he's very measured in how he talks. He can be very funny and engaging, but, you know, he's not going to show that side a lot. Levine, on the other hand, is very cocky and in a very charming way, but he's got a lot of swagger. He's kind of brash and loud. And Towns is like a really good counterbalance for both of those things because he's genuine and warm and talkative, but he's not overconfident or particularly he doesn't have a ton of swagger. It's a nice three-legged stool of personalities they have there. And I think they balance each other in a really good way, which again, it's that's not what wins you championships, but it's nice to have on the team where you feel like the guys actually like each other and they also have personalities that gel in a, in a good way. Yeah, you talked a lot about Andrew Wiggins, the other number one overall pick on the team. He's someone who somehow fell short of expectations after winning Rookie of the Year, which is tough to do. But the expectations have just been through the roof for him as a, a transformational player. And he, he still could be that. But this year, he's shown significant improvement. He's getting to the line a lot more. He's increasingly comfortable in the pick and roll, and his outside shot's looking good. It's over 40% from three-point range since February 1st. How has he and or the Wolves melded his particular skill set to that of the team? That's a good question. I mean, I think that they're still trying to figure out exactly what Wiggins can do. Rob Mahoney from SI has a great piece that came out on Tuesday that talks a lot about the development of Wiggins and how the Wolves are sort of very conscientiously showing him different things to, you know, let him figure out what he can do on the court that last year, there were a lot of post-ups uh, for him. And he naturally, he, he goes to the post-ups because it's a strength for him. And it also means he doesn't have to handle the ball too much, which is a weakness for him. Now they're doing a little more where he's catching the ball off curls and then he has to make a decision. He has to learn where the role man's going to be when he's, when the role man's going to pop, when he's going to dive to the hoop. He's sort of learning. It's sort of a lot of repetition of just seeing they want to give him the ball in a way that he gets to see the court a bunch of times a game and then makes decisions. And then they can see how he, he deals with that. They can see what they what he has to work on. I sort of feel like in a lot of ways, Levine, Levine might be the player of those three who is the closest to his potential right now it, because I see him as a scorer. He depending on what happens, he could be a six man or he could be a starting shooting guard if his, if his defenses comes along. But basically, you're not going to rely on him for defense. You're going to rely on him for offense, shooting and transition. He's the closest to, the, to his potential, but his potential is also lower than those other two guys. Towns is further along to his considerable potential than Andrew Wiggins is, but Andrew Wiggins' potential might be right up there with Towns. It's just that I think it's going to take longer for him to find his, his game. I definitely feel like based on what you see in flashes from him, based on what we've seen him do when he's locked in, he's a real candidate for being a guy who's a number one draft pick, very highly touted has a couple of years of growing pains and then is like a most improved player candidate type guy where Towns sort of becomes the, the franchise guy in the immediate future. And then Wiggins is sort of gets the chance to sort of quietly develop his game a little more. And then it's suddenly surprising to a lot of people how good he can actually be. 
Yeah, he's still so young. And like I said, so much was demanded of him before he even stepped onto an NBA court. So he's definitely showing improvement. And Zach Levine is obviously best known for the dunk contests. We've seen it in games, too. He just has that crazy athleticism that is unique, really, among anyone. I mean, Russell Westbrook kind of does similar things with the explosion um, at the rim. But he's looking good, particularly at the starting two position. It just seems like a more natural fit to his skill set as opposed to when he was backing up at point guard. Is that your sense, that he's just much more comfortable there? His stats really bear that out since they've made the move to him there. Yeah, I think he's definitely more comfortable at the two guard and just not being the primary ball handler on plays. I mean, I think that that was always their plan. I don't think they were ever really trying to groom him to be the even the point guard off the bench. I think the idea always was he can be a secondary ball handler on a lot of action. And I think you see him doing a pretty good job with those responsibilities. He's always sort of said that playing point guard is a good opportunity for him because then when he moves to shooting guard, he knows where he's supposed to be because as the point guard, he sort of has to learn where everybody's going to be on plays. Uh, it gives him a better sense of what his role is, even when he's not the one who's handling the ball. And certainly I think shooting guard is, is really his position. I, you know, I mean, again, I think I could see him having a role sort of like Jamal Crawford where he can run the offense occasionally in short spurts to give a different look to the team. But basically, you're going to want him to be a scorer. You want him to be a catch-and-shoot guy. You want him to attack aggressively in transition. He already put on a bunch of muscle mass in this past offseason. Like, if you go back and look at photos of him from his rookie year, he's considerably beefier at this point. And I would imagine that he's going to keep trying to do that. You know, he's got to learn to finish through contact and use some of that explosiveness, not just on the open floor, but in attacking a set defense. But when he gets all that stuff together, he's he's a lot of fun. I mean, he's fun to watch. He's got a great personality, a really nice guy. I, I think he can be I think he can be really good. That was cool to hear about the charitable work involving the deaf school. He donated some of his winnings from the dunk contest. Just really cool to hear. I don't think we hear enough about those stories, and I'm sure that there are a lot of them out there. Are there any other charitable projects that come to mind that you know that certain Timberwolves players have worked on this season or in recent history? I'm trying to think of, uh, I mean, there was, you know, I think that when Love was here, he had a, he had a coat drive and that was the big thing for him. That became like his signature thing was getting coats for people. I don't know that, I, I think the Levine thing is one of the first ones I've heard about specifically with any of these young guys who are on the team now, but they're all, they all do a lot of stuff like that. I remember Wiggins and Towns, I think going shopping with some kids over the holidays like taking him to Target to get him Christmas presents, things like that. I mean, I think the Wolves do a good job of being involved uh, with the community. And and like you said, I think that a lot of that stuff happens all the time and you don't always you don't always get to see it. The Levine story was particularly nice because of using money from the dunk contest. And and again, he's just a very charismatic, genuine kid. And I think he really he really does care about that stuff. I think you I think you saw that. And I think that I think that Towns is like that. I would not be surprised at all if Towns has something set up like that for him, especially next year after he's sort of through the rookie stuff. I think probably they don't try to ladle, ladle too much stuff on the rookies plates because it's hard enough just getting through your rookie year in the NBA. Yeah, it's great to hear that that these young players are so into helping the community and, and it's really a priority for them. Um, yeah. So the Timberwolves are one of the youngest teams in the NBA, especially if you're not counting old man KG on the bench. <laughs> We've already talked about three of their young stars. With so much young talent and potential, 
Is there anything in particular that the organization does to make sure they develop to their fullest and avoid the common pitfalls that young players tend to experience? From what I understand, the, the organization is very concerned about developing their, their young talent and in a way that they haven't been before. Britt Robson, uh, who's a writer for MinPost and, and has done stuff for Sports Illustrated and a lot of other publications over his career, had a, had a sit down with Sam Mitchell where, where Mitchell talked about these binders that they keep on all the players now. And Mitchell said they basically had nothing like that prior to Flip coming back to the team in terms of tracking what guys are doing. But in in these binders, you know, it talks about all the work they're doing off the court in terms of strength and conditioning and, you know, recording their reps on different different exercises, recording the results of their three point shooting drills, all that kind of stuff. I think Rob Mahoney went into this a little bit as well. You know, they have Arnie Kander now, who's sort of a guru of, of physical fitness and a guy who has sort of, you know, unconventional approach in a lot of ways, like a very holistic kind of approach to the body and keeping these guys healthy. Wiggins is apparently not doing a lot of lifting at this point, but a lot of work with resistance bands and functional strength, not necessarily just like straight line strength, but he think he referenced like rotator cuff uh, strength and things like that that will keep him healthy. And they, they look at how guys move on the court and try to correct imbalances and, and things like that. And all that stuff having to do with proprioception and, and the body moving through space and how the players understand that. So that stuff, it's all implemented. I mean, they're implementing it now. You're not really going to see the fruits of that for a while. And the fruits of it might not always appear as like a clear positive. It might just be the absence of the negative. You know, I mean, I mean, how many years was it where the Suns had this amazing training staff, but people didn't start talking about it until they just realized how many old guys were going there and having like a new lease on life. So the the Wolves just started a new relationship with the Mayo Clinic, obviously one of the world's most respected medical organizations in Rochester, Minnesota. So they have a new facility downtown, which is also a new training facility for the Wolves. And that relationship is only, I think it's at this point, it'll be two seasons old. So they're still sort of working out how that all works together, but they're very interested in, in trying to keep these guys healthy and trying to train them the right way and keeping track of all that stuff and not letting any of that stuff just go to chance. So I read in an SB Nation article last year that when Kevin Garnett was asked if he'd consider becoming a coach after his clan career is over, he answered, hell nah, <laughs> but he really is a coach out there. Yeah. What's his impact behind the scenes for this team? And how much does he benefit the youngsters, especially a big man like Carl Anthony Towns, to have a legend and consummate professional like KG around? Yeah, I, I think that KG's impact has been huge. I think it'll also be one that you will feel more as these guys grow up a little bit. If you just look at how much KG instilled in them communication on defense and if you ever go and watch KG from early in the season or, or the couple of games he played last year, I mean, he's he's slower but his footwork is still so good and so solid and so fundamental. Uh, and I think he brought that on the court when the, when, when the season started, uh, you know, when it was KG and Tayshaun Prince. They, they were that starting lineup. There was issues with scoring, but defensively, they were amazing. And, and again, that's not just athleticism or anything like that. It's about more than that. So, yes, Carl Anthony Towns is athletically gifted in terms of being able to block shots and things like that. But it's a lot about communication and understanding the schemes. And I think the KG brings a lot of that. And he brings it from a place that a coach can. I mean, they've talked about this before where, you know, it's different when the coach is the guy in the, in the suit who's telling you what to do but isn't out there playing, even if they used to play. KG, I mean, he's injured now, but 
he is a player. He's one of them. And so his voice carries a different kind of weight in the locker room. I think he's been huge for the team. I think that he's constantly coaching. It is hilarious to me. I think I tweeted about it where, you know, before, you know, he said, I'm, I don't want to be a coach. And then every time out, he's like, all right, Shabazz, when you get the ball, like catch it, hold it above your head. Don't put it down. You know, like Wiggins, you stand here. Like he's just always going in on them about what they should be doing constantly. So, you know, it's possible that there's a little bit of smoke screen there that he just didn't want to talk about that possibility yet. It's possible he doesn't he doesn't think he wants to do it, but he might actually be pretty good at it. I could foresee a situation in which he's part of ownership or management, and yet he's at a lot of the practices and he's going over a lot of stuff with the guys. So he might not be on the bench coaching for the Wolves, but I mean, it would be silly to have him involved in ownership or management, which is something I think that is more likely for him and just not have him involved in the basketball end of things at all. I mean, I think he should be involved in that stuff. Yeah, and moving on to the front office, the owner, Glenn Taylor, recently has put the current Wolves GM, Milt Newton, in sort of a weird situation where he's allowing Newton to draft for the team this offseason and make the summer free agency moves, but after that, deciding whether or not Milt Newton is going to keep his job or not. To me, that seems like that creates a strange environment or incentive structure for the GM. Do you expect him to still be the GM at the start of next season? I do expect him to be the GM at the start of the next season, but really only because I think the broader picture here is about the question of ownership overall, because there was news that Kaplan, uh, this guy who was a part owner of the Memphis Grizzlies, was interested in having part ownership of the Timberwolves and that this would sort of set the stage for a gradual shift away from Glenn Taylor as the majority owner. But then they hit a roadblock with that. There was an issue about the part of the Grizzlies he owned and, and all this stuff. And apparently that's now dead in the water. And so once again, Glenn Taylor is the owner, but is also getting on in years and wants to find somebody who's going to buy the team and keep them in Minnesota. That's very important to Glenn. And so to that extent, I feel like, sure, Milt Newton could be the GM next year. Sam Mitchell could well be the coach next year. But it might only be because it wouldn't necessarily be a great idea to hire somebody new who then is going to get tossed overboard by a new ownership that wants something different. I mean, I just think it would be a tough situation for anybody who wanted that job. If you had to say, Hey, like we're going to hire you, but know that ownership could be shifting in the next year, at which point, you know, your job security goes, goes out the window. Basically, you know, I think it's important to understand that Glenn Taylor is from an old school of owners. He predates the Mark Cubans and, and guys who are buying teams, not necessarily to make money, but guys who have money who want to run a team and are in a sort of, you know, analytical, I really want to make the best moves in order to make this team win and, and everything like that. Glenn wants the team to win. He wants the, he wants the team to do well. But I don't think he necessarily – he doesn't want the team to do that at the expense of other things he values, which are like loyalty and the sort of family he's built with the team and things like that. I think that a lot of times we tend to think of owners as either good or bad. They're either great or they're terrible. And I think that's sometimes the wrong way to think about it. You need to think about owners in terms of all the various things that they want out of it, all the various reasons that they're owners of a team to begin with. Factoring in all that stuff, it's like a, a guy can be willing to spend, he can want the team to win, and he just might not value those things above other things. And I think that Glenn Taylor's in that position right now, which I think, I mean, I think it puts a ceiling on how good the Wolves can be so long as Glenn Taylor is the owner, because I don't think he's going to make some of the tough decisions. Like, for instance, just saying, 
I'm going to say the owner, we're getting a new GM, we're getting a new coach. I don't think he's really, he's ever going to be the kind of guy to do that. But that doesn't mean that the team can't be very good until he leaves ownership. And speaking more specifically about the needs to be addressed in the offseason, we've already talked a lot about the young core that the team has. Would you say that the team as constructed currently already has a lot of the structure, the pieces in place to make a splash in the playoffs in the near future? Or do you think there are specific things that still need to be addressed? I mean, there there are things that need to be addressed, but I do think that the the move that they made sort of in early February to the starting lineup as it is right now essentially represents five-fifths or four-fifths of what you can expect the starting lineup to be for a good while. Gorgie Jang as a power forward alongside Towns is kind of always been something that I found kind of questionable, but not really from a a result standpoint, but simply from a sense that the NBA is moving away from two big men like that. Despite that, despite my own feeling about that, they've actually been very effective together. So I wouldn't necessarily just categorically say that Gorgie can't play power forward in the, in the modern NBA. Jang and, and Towns have been, have been really good when they've been on the court together. So maybe, maybe that part is fine. I mean, it'd be great if Bielitsa can rebound from a season that was kind of a disappointment in a lot of ways. I mean, he's coming over from Europe and being the guy over there. He was a EuroLeague MVP. He struggled, but it would be nice to have that stretch four option for the team to go to sometimes. I still think they need a good solid backup option behind Wiggins at the two and three. I mean, they've got Shabazz, but right now, if you look at the bench, generally Mitchell's been doing a lot less platooning than he was early on the season. He would sort of shift the whole bench in at once. He's been playing guys, bringing guys in in a little more staggered way. So you rarely see the entire bench out there, but their bench right now is basically Shabazz, Tayshaun Prince. Adrian Payne, and then Greg Smith, who hasn't been playing a ton recently. But Greg Smith, he, I mean, he just joined the team on a, on a couple 10 days, and then they signed him for, through the rest of the season. So that's not that's not a very good lineup. Like, this is not, this is not a very good lineup. So they need a lot of work in terms of bringing guys in behind those starters. But I'm comfortable with rolling the dice with the starting lineup the way it is starting for next season. It'd be kind of great for the Wolves to have essentially to start the season with the same starting lineup they ended the season with the year before, which I don't think has happened in the recent past for them. Yeah, there's been a lot of instability lately. If you can be brief with this one, that'd be great. But Sam Mitchell was thrust into a situation that I'm sure he didn't expect this season with the untimely passing of Flip Saunders. And he's been the coach all season. There seemed to be some tensions earlier in the year. The Associated Press had a report that about half of the team privately expressed concerns about his coaching and his fit with the team. What is the status of those in your mind? And, and what are the chances that he'll be back next season? I think that the team has played really well since early February, basically. And I think that he's shown that he deserves the chance to continue coaching the team, provided that there's not some opportunity that presents itself like a dream coach who definitely wants to come into this situation again where the ownership is a little bit up in the air. If somebody is willing to do that and it's the guy that they really want, and I'm not sure who that is. I know a lot of people like Tom Thibodeau. You know, there's Scott Brooks is out there and has some Timberwolves connections and things like that. Basically, the thing with Mitchell is I don't think he's necessarily the coach that guides them to championship contention. But based on, you know, winning 10 more games than last season and the possibility that definitely through the work he's done as a developmental guy and then the the young players developing themselves, like adding on another 10 wins or so next season, I think he could be that guy for the team. So I don't have a huge problem with him with him staying. And I think that the team's come around on him in a lot of ways over the, the last you know third of the season. 
that's good to hear. And what role do you think he plays in the subpar defense? I know that it's a really young team, and that's indicative usually of a young team. They're 27th in defensive rating. Do you think he shares part of the blame in that or not really? It's really hard to say. I, I think that probably bothers him more than anything else. Early on when people talked about the struggles with offense, like he was saying how good they were on defense with KG and, and Tayshawn Prince in that starting lineup. And I think defense is something he really he really wanted to emphasize in training camp and something he really wanted to emphasize with the team. But I think eventually he he maybe a little bit later than he should have, but the team needed to get unlocked just to start seeing some success, even if it was at the expense of the defense. And so they played it. They played at a higher pace recently. They've tried to get more baskets in transition and they've tried to sort of leverage some of the athleticism of Wiggins and Towns and Levine in a lot of ways. And I think that's, you know, I think that decision was just. Yes, we'd like to be a good defensive team, but that's not there right now. And so this team needs to taste some success. And so let's just try going a different route for a while. I would imagine that if he's there again next year, training camp is going to be all about trying to get the defense together again and hope that the offensive strides they've made hold. And then we'll see how it goes next year. I, I mean, I think he he bears some of the blame in the sense that I think the buck stops with him as far as how they've decided to play. But I think they've also made the right choice to try to get these guys some taste of what it can be like to succeed in some ways in the NBA, even if it's not with good defense right now. You mentioned Shabazz Muhammad a little bit earlier in the interview. He had a monster game against the Warriors. It's been kind of an interesting early career for him. He didn't really play as a rookie, and he was a little bit of a disappointment in his lone season at UCLA, but What's his ceiling, and do we kind of just have to be resigned to the fact that he's not going to be a star, and he just needs to find his niche in the NBA? Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's going to be a star. I think his best role is is as a six man or, or guy off the bench because he's just he constantly gets after it. I mean, he just never stops, and that's good and bad. I mean, he's a guy where when he gets the ball, he wants to put the ball through the hoop, and he doesn't. And sometimes he doesn't see other people. And Sam, I know, has gotten on him about that. I think in the right situation, he can be a very useful sixth man. I'm not sure that that Minnesota is the right situation. Ultimately, like, I don't know if the timing of when they're going to need him to be that is going to line up with when everybody else gets to that point. You know, it's just kind of one of these things of you could have a great sixth man. But if the, the starters aren't really there yet, then it's kind of you don't really need a great sixth man at that moment. They sort of ran into that with Berea when the Wolves got Berea as he was supposed to be that spark off the bench for a team that was going to suddenly make the playoffs once they added Kevin Martin and Ricky Rubio and Kevin Love and and Nikola Pekovic, that team looked good. And then Brea can be this guy. And then they had to have Brea start a bunch of games and play a lot more minutes and be a primary ball handler and not be just, you know, sort of a spark. Then suddenly that's not a good role for him. So Shabazz's ceiling, I think, is something along those lines. I think that the biggest concern with him is that the amount of focus it takes just to keep him sort of in line with what the team is trying to do is more than what he gives you is worth essentially at this point. So I I think he needs to get better on defense. He needs to get better with his court awareness. If those things can come along, he's an incredibly hard worker and he's a great guy and very thoughtful and easy to talk to. I mean, I think he will have a good NBA career. I'm not convinced it's going to be on the Timberwolves long term. Ricky Rubio's almost can be considered the elder statesman on the team. Seems like he's been around forever because we've been hearing his name since he was 15. But he's still only 25, just entering the beginning of his prime. He might not ever become the game-changing point guard some expected, but he's still an amazing passer and ball handler, and he has excellent court vision, and he's a very good defender. 
What's his role and importance on the team? I mean, how has he balanced those strengths against his glaring weaknesses, like not being able to shoot or finish? I like the the, the way you put that with saying that he's entering his prime, because I think that's a way that a lot of people don't tend to think about him, especially in Minnesota, just because he's been here for so long. But he's also had a lot of coaches. I mean, he's been here for four years and he's had three coaches, I think, in, the, in that time. That's a lot of changeover. And I think that he's one of those guys where the right guys around him will he will elevate their games and they will make him look better. I know he often gets compared to Rajon Rondo simply because of the the passing ability and the inability to shoot. And obviously Rondo can finish in a way that, that Rubio doesn't. But I think it's similar in the sense that Rondo looked amazing when he had, you know, amazing players around him. And that's I mean, that sounds like that's the way everybody should be, but it's not. You know, it's not the case that that everybody looks really good when they're paired with really good players. So some of those guys disappear. Some of those guys never figure out how to fill their role. I think that we're seeing that Rubio commanding the floor, sort of organizing a, a young team can be a really good influence on, on how that team plays and how good that team looks. So, I mean, I could foresee in a couple of years as Towns looks amazing and Wiggins comes into his own and Levine is a scoring phenom who, you know, is all over the court that, that Rubio starts getting those features that are like, Hey, Remember Rubio? Like he's kind of he might kind of be the key to a lot of this stuff. And I sort of believe that. I mean, I think he's I think he's tremendously underrated overall. And I think he's a great defender. I think that is a huge part of what makes him very successful, more so than, you know, the flashy passes. And and those are fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love to see his his flashy passes. But I think that I think he's gonna be an important player for the Timberwolves. And they got him on a pretty good deal given how the the cap is going up right now. So, you know, I think roll the dice with him and see how he does for the next couple of years at least. Yeah, why not roll the dice? Finally, we'd be remiss not to inquire about the legacy of Flip Saunders on the team, the city, and the league more broadly. He's so important to the city of Minneapolis, having attended U of M, coaching the Wolves for 10 seasons from 95 to 2005 during the KG era, basically the only stretch of success. He was the head coach during all eight playoff appearances in franchise history, and then coming back for a second stint as president in 2013 and head coach the following year before his untimely death from Hodgkin's lymphoma. So can you speak to his legacy a little bit? Yeah, I mean, he was an amazing guy in a lot of ways. And that's not to say that I didn't think, I think everybody would say that, you know, there were things that they disagreed with him about, or, you know, obviously, there was a constant fight about three point shooting. And, you know, the stuff that's continued this season, like, is he designing the team in the best way possible? And obviously, a lot of that stuff gets kind of swept aside when when someone passes away in an untimely fashion like that. But I think that the great thing about Flip is that he was always willing to talk about that stuff and that he just loved basketball so much and he loved to talk about those things. So even if, you know, he was getting kind of tired of people asking about three pointers, he would always joke about it. He would always entertain it. He never seemed guarded or closed off. I only had the chance to sort of sit with him uh, in a sort of one-on-one fashion a couple times, you know, sort of in the context of other things I was working on. But he's truly one of those guys where even if whatever you felt about basketball, when you talked to him, you knew that here was a guy who had forgotten more than you were probably ever going to know about the game in a lot of ways. And you can disagree about what you think is important now, but you couldn't help but respect his knowledge and love for the game. 
And I think that that um, it, it's informed the way the roster is built right now. I think that the team is trying to keep his spirit and vision for the team alive while also adapting to, you know, changes and things that he pot, you know, he couldn't foresee, obviously. So, you know, I think as long as they're not trying, they're not beholden to just this is what Flip wanted, but they understand that what Flip wanted was for the team to be great and for them to inspire the fans. I think that's that's how they keep Flip's legacy alive. I mean, he he was he dressed flashy. I mean, not like Craig Sager flashy, but, you know, his his suits, he had these like maroon suits and, you know, he would pull out the, the kind of funky ones for the national TV engagements. And, you know, he had this thing with uh, Dunks After Dark, his first year as coach, where the, the team went down to Mankato and they played like like a scrimmage at midnight and it was like a college atmosphere and people were going crazy. And that was all flip. That was like his idea, the sort of barnstorming old school basketball tour stuff. And so I think that his love of the game was just super genuine. And I think if, if the Wolves can carry that forward, then they'll be they'll be doing a good job. Well said. And thanks so much for joining us. Steve. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, this is great. A lot of fun. 